Everybody knows that poverty is a monstrous problem in America, born of wealth inequality, capitalist greed, public indifference, and so on. But few people who are not poor themselves have a chance to view poverty with intimate detail over time. At close range, one observes that poverty has predictable patterns and wounds people in repetitive and familiar ways. The poor do not suffer from random acts of fate, but rather from frighteningly mundane methods of cruelty and humiliation. To be poor is to be pressed on one side with the challenges of basic survival, and on the other side by the indifference of bureaucratic institutions, the proverbial rock and a hard place. Hello friends and comrades, Rob here in the shadow of Rockford Tower in Highlands Bunker Studio. Super producer Carl is at a secured remote location. Our guest today is Phil Wilson. Uh, Phil is a therapist who worked in community mental health in both the San Francisco Bay Area and in Western Massachusetts. Now retired, uh, he is working to clarify and contextualize his life's work uh, and examine the political uh, environment with, uh, with which his clients had to deal with to survive day to day. Uh, to that end, uh, he has written a recent essay in Current Affairs magazine titled Couchsurfing the Waves of American Poverty. I am pleased to welcome uh, Phil Wilson to Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hello, Phil. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, before we get into the specifics of the current affairs piece, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background in the Bay Area. Um, your your time there overlapped with or perhaps was adjacent to um, the governorship of Ronald Reagan. Um, and your career began at a time when Reagan was uh, making his preliminary efforts to slash resources for public health and mental health specifically in California. Um, he later infamously uh, implemented this across the entire country about a decade later. Um, closing facilities, uh, stopping essential services, and so on. Um, can you speak briefly about your background and early work in the Bay Area, uh, and then and maybe any thought um, you have about working in the field in that Reagan environment? Um, I actually did not move to the Bay Area until 1984. I see. So, um, but the, certainly the results of the um, gutting of the mental health system was very apparent. Um, I remember in Berkeley, and I don't know whether these are uh, statistics based on rumor um, or actual statistics, but uh, we had heard that there were 30,000 homeless people within the city limits of Berkeley itself. And uh, I, I think the number for San Francisco uh, given at that time was 60,000. Um, but I, I certainly have very clear memories of the uh, experience of uh, living in a, a society that had completely abandoned any sort of um, um, caring intervention around mental illness and homelessness, uh, that the, the streets were just full of people who had nowhere to go. Um, there were as many homeless people as there were pedestrians, other pedestrians, uh, since homeless people are also pedestrians, but uh, the, their numbers were 
were astronomical. And the, the thing that struck me is uh, how much as a, as a society we're, we're willing to tolerate just abominable treatment of citizens. Um, and it can escalate almost in unlimited fashion. And, and that was certainly an example of that. Um, there, there were so many people suffering and nothing, absolutely nothing being done or very little being done to help them. Um, I moved away from the Bay Area 25 years ago. I've been in uh, Western Massachusetts for that period of time. So I'm, I'm not uh, entirely aware of what's happening in California now and, and how that situation has been, um, has played out over that quarter of a century. Yeah, so your your essay uh, is organi organized around the euphemism couch surfing. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to understand uh, sort of the perniciousness of the term uh, and in a sense sort of hiding the true precariousness of people's living situation? Um, I think this goes to what you were saying before. This allows people to sort of um, ignore things or, or be callous to things because they're not represented in a in a in a particular in a, in a in a realistic way, um, uh, and also maybe how this fits into the spectrum of homelessness. You describe um, four distinct categories, but also that they're very fluid. So people, you know, individuals can move, you know, throughout different types or categories of homelessness as well. Absolutely, um, many people uh, maybe working for a while end up losing their job, but they're they're people who go from working full time to living rough in the woods, um, and it can happen in a heartbeat. And there are, you know, everybody couch surfs, whatever category they might be in at, at any particular time. I, I doubt that I've had a single client over that 25 year period who hadn't at some point in their lives um, been forced into couch surfing in order to survive. So it, it's, a, it's a term that people use themselves to describe uh, what they're doing. And there, there are many, many levels of couch surfing. If, if somebody is staying with their parents and they own their own home and they're secure in that, uh, in that space, that living space, then you probably wouldn't even call it couch surfing because those are people who really have a, a niche in a place. If they're couch surfing with their parents and their parents are living in a subsidized uh, project and they're being threatened by authorities with eviction, then that uh, really is couch surfing because uh, I think the defining property of couch surfing is that it's unstable and risky. And uh, there are lots and lots of people doing it. I, this is obviously my piece is an anecdotal piece and my experiences are um, the experiences of one person. So I, I don't have, and I don't think anybody has access to real numbers on how many people are, are couch surfing. And uh, again, to, to really define couch surfing, it is uh, inherently unstable and risky. And a lot of people go from, from, one place to another. They might be staying with a, a friend, a cousin, a brother-in-law, or they might be staying in some cases with a complete stranger, somebody they met uh, 
on the streets and or somebody they've met through an acquaintance. Uh, somebody might call a, a relative and say, I'm, I don't have any place to say, stay. And that person might say, well, I don't have any space, but I know somebody who does. So it, it's something that uh, has a fairly widespread network. And, uh, you know, people are, are struggling. There's a, a tremendous anxiety for somebody who doesn't have a place to stay and they're kind of winging it from moment to moment, trying to keep a roof over their head. And uh, that affects, I'm, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure it must be in the millions and millions of people. But again, you know, my, my piece is anecdotal. I don't really have real statistics. And clearly, uh, um, the HUD report to Congress uh, had no uh, insight whatsoever into the phenomena. Yeah, I took a note on that. Um, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about that. Just the idea of, you know, one thing, a euphemism certainly working to shield the reality of what's happening, but also just the the attempt that uh, is made to quantify even the number of people who are in this precarious situation, whether they're on the street all the time, whether they're couch surfing, whatever they're doing, um, seems extremely deficient. Um, maybe you can talk about um, that piece of it. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, utterly deficient because uh, I, I'm I'm sure you know it's, it seems to be purposeful. Um, I would imagine that. Uh, government bureaucracies are interested in making it seem as if the numbers are as low as possible. Um, it's certainly an embarrassment to the country if we were to say there are 15 million or 20 million homeless people in the country. Um, and if uh, all the people who are very precarious in their couch surfing survival strategies were counted, uh, you know, it's it could be a very very large number, so uh, I think there's a there's an intentional effort to keep that number obscure. So, um, it would also be a very difficult thing to to know about, particularly since uh, since there is risk to couch surfers, and they try to most people who are couch surfing don't really want to cut. Uh, bureaucrats into the information of how they're surviving. Yeah, a, a frequently occurring theme on this podcast um, is that our public social programs, such as they are, uh, are designed to be difficult, um, confusing, insufficient. Um, there's a general sense that um, it's punitive almost. Uh, of course, it's tied into the criminal justice system uh, in uh, grotesque ways. Uh, but there's this myth that the failures of society and the economy are individual failures and they denote some sort of virtue or it's like a virtue signal. Um, so when we provide anything, you know, the bare subsistence, if we provide anything at all, um, you describe ways. And, and basically what I say is people have to humiliate themselves uh, just to 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 receive the, the bare minimum. Um I just a little aside, just a little aside here. Even liberals use this rhetoric like means testing and the honor of work. Um, just this week, but, you know, President elect Biden just this week said nobody wants a handout. Um, I think, you know, people don't want their neighbors maybe to have one, but they certainly might need one or, or should have one. Um, but you tell a lot of personal stories about the 
the bureaucratic um, humiliation almost that people have to to go through and the and the steps and the and the waiting and the precarious nature of the whole thing. Uh, maybe you could tell a few of those because they're they're uh, incredibly poignant. And as you said, while they're anecdotal, I think they do reflect um, in a more real way what's actually happening. Yeah, you know, I, I can actually uh, give you some some stuff that wasn't in the piece. Um, okay. And, uh, the piece is kind of kind of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's there's only so much you can put into a, a you know a, a particular uh, snapshot of, of experiences, but uh, in any case, uh, I, I would say that that the amount of energy and scrutiny that's invested in, in making sure that poor people get as little as possible is, is absolutely astonishing. Um, I, I, would, I would guess that probably just the sheer price, the, the price tag of having so many bureaucrats um, overseeing the system and, and scrutinizing so many details must cost many, many times the amount of money it would that could be provided to relieve the the situations of uh, a lot of people. But uh, to give you an example, uh, people who have not yet been approved for uh, social security disability um, often can qualify for what's called transitional assistance, and I, and I believe this is a federal program. Um, but uh, transitional assistance uh, doesn't uh, require the same kind of um, really intense application process that uh, social security disability does. And it's, a, it's easier to get on transitional assistance. However, um, transitional assistance is only, th I don't know, $360 a month or so. Uh, it may have changed recently. I don't don't have an exact figure, but it's a, a, a pretty um, minimal amount. Uh, certainly nobody's going to be paying rent and surviving on $360 a month, but that's what's given with transitional assistance. However, in order to get that $360, you do have to provide some sort of evidence that you're paying some part of that $360 toward rent. So if somebody's paying, staying with their parents, they could have their parents or their parents' landlord sign some little piece of paper saying they're paying, you know, $120 a month for rent. Now, now should the, the people at transitional assistance find out that a person has actually become homeless, and that does happen quite frequently, then their transitional assistance is cut to something like $60 a month. So, uh, that $300 is just uh, siphoned right off. And, and the idea is that if you're homeless, you don't need to pay rent, so you don't really need $360. So here you have people who are homeless and all they've got is $60. And, and one of the things that maybe I didn't make quite clear enough in, in my uh, current affairs uh, article is that uh, couch surfing is often a transactional um, relationship between the host and the couch surfer. Um, if a if a person's staying with their their parent, then you know it's often done out of uh, 
sheer generosity. If they're staying with a stranger, there's probably an expectation that the person's going to pay something for the uh, right to couch surf and maybe throw a, a sleeping bag into the corner of a living room. So that that's not free, but if you're if you're not paying rent and you're on transitional assistance and you're down to $60 a month, then that makes couch surfing very difficult because you have out almost absolutely nothing to offer for to a host for the uh, uh, privilege of couch surfing. So that that's kind of an example of the the sort of scrutiny and um, and tight fistedness of the bureaucracy that really doesn't take into account at all the realities of survival on the streets. If uh, you know if the bureaucracy was sympathetic to the plight of people who are trying to survive and who are struggling to come up with a few bucks to give to people to in order to put a roof over their head, then it would seem perfectly logical that that petty amount of $360 should not be touched. But uh, that, that's the kind of uh, scrutiny and cruelty and control that the bureaucracies have over people who are barely able to survive, even under the best of circumstances. Yeah, my mind goes many different places because, um, you know, you hear about this. I mean, you hear that story and you're like, okay, well, so what it's doing is it's taking, you know, 75 percent of the of, of your funds away when you're as your condition deteriorates. So even the. Even the logic of it is, is is nonsense. I just I have this idea like a black mirror science fiction type of thing where, you know, if they come up with some sort of algorithm uh, that they can figure out exactly the minimum amount of caloric requirement at each person, that's how they'll give you, you know, your your SNAP benefits or your food assistance by some sort of weird, you know, calculation um, that and, and uh, you know, I just have a uh, this is one of my pet peeves is this. Um, sort of technocratic, um, you know, solving homelessness with calculus sort of uh, sort of a thing. And then when you hear the the levels of bureaucracy to enforce rules that are like that don't that are don't make logical sense, um, you know, it's 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 very troubling. Well, there, there are lots and lots of stories of of people whose lives were completely um had completely fallen apart based on bureaucratic technicalities. I had a, a fellow who was a, a client of mine who uh, got married and uh, his wife was was working and they were living together for years prior to getting married. And uh, he was on social security disability and his wife was working. However, somehow when when they crunched all the numbers of her salary, his uh, social security was taken away entirely. And uh, because he had, he had gotten married, just uh, signing that document uh, it sort of ping-ponged through the system. And uh, all of a sudden he had no income whatsoever and the two of them became homeless. So, you know that that was a, another very 
mind-blowing experience of the, the kind of pernicious uh, quality and capability and randomness of bureaucracy. And uh, subsequently, whenever I had clients who were thinking of getting married, I would always instruct them to go to the social security office and run the numbers by them and see if it was safe to get married, because often it wasn't. I had people who did go to the social security office, asked the questions and decided, no, we're not gonna get married. That's not gonna work. So it just shows how that the tentacles, you know, if people who are nominally not, uh, not poor, not dependent on these bureaucratic structures, never think twice about, uh, you know, the, how the plot of their life is going to unfold in the manner in which they hope it's going to unfold. But if you're, if you're a poor person, every decision has that possibility of uh, kind of rebounding on you and causing uh, contingencies that you had no idea were, were out there and possible. So uh, life is very, very circumscribed by rules, bureaucracy, decisions, whims, arbitrary decisions. Um, you're, you're not nearly as free a person once you enter into dependence on that, that bureaucracy. And if you're disabled, you have no other choice. Yeah, one of our big uh, sort of pushes here when we talk about um, social services and support is universal programs. Um, because the bureaucracy, the rules, the uh, you know, the checklist, and and uh, you know all of that <clears throat> that that doesn't that doesn't work. That creates more of an issue, and you, you like you said, then it, it becomes arbitrary. It's 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 capricious at that point because you can't predict, you know, when you try to put all of these things together. Uh, what they're going to do. So when people start talking about means testing or applying these different, you know, rules and who's and qualifications, um, they don't do what people suspect they do. I, I wish there was better messaging about that. I, uh, but but yeah, it's this is the this is a perfect example, or the all of these examples um, are really an argument for not only more support but universal support things that everybody uh, gets uh, because they're you know because they're here um, and, and it has to be more than the minimum and, and it has to be universal or else you just run into these issues that really are are uh, pernicious I think is the word you used I agree yeah it's a I mean a, another example that I did kind of feature in the in the piece was the the way that substance abusers are arbitrarily cut out of the uh, safety net. Um, and uh, even though for decades now, it's been just a, a central axiom in mental health that, um, that substance abuse is an illness. It's not a, it's not a moral failure. It's not a, um, a character flaw. Uh, people who are substance abusers, uh, either have genetic propensity to, uh, to be very vulnerable to substance abuse, or they've experienced the, the kinds of trauma and difficulties in their life that also increase their risk. It's, uh, 
something that's not under people's control. And, and, and substance abuse treatment programs always kind of highlight that fact. It's not under your control. That's why you need to, to go to AA meetings. That's why you need to be in a treatment program. That's why you need support because it's not something that you're going to, in most cases, in most instances, you're not going to be able to um, conquer this affliction by a sheer act of your individual will. And even though that's completely central to, to the way that the mental health um, uh, profession views substance abuse, when you're uh, applying for social security disability, um, you're scrutinized. It, it, you know, for, for things as mundane as smoking pot, you can be excluded and, and, and disqualified for receiving benefits. Even if you have uh, all sorts of um, problems and diagnostic, and you hit all the diagnostic categories needed to qualify for that disability, the, the fact of even minor dabbling in substances, if they uh, if the, the bureaucracy gets hold of that information, um, you can really be screwed. And uh, I've seen all kinds of people uh, confronted in, in, in taking it to court uh, about, uh, oh, it's, uh, it's written here that you have a problem with pot. And, uh, and you know, pot is so ubiquitous in, in our culture. Probably the judges that are making yeah. decisions to, to eliminate these people are probably going home and getting stoned. But Well, I, I can tell you, Phil, you, you touched a nerve here because this is another one of our, uh, our, our, our ballywicks, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, I very openly uh, smoke on the show when I'm interviewing people, uh, whether they're politicians or uh, activists or writers or whatever, and part of that shtick um, is is to is to sort of prove that like it's not it's not inherent in in smoking weed and and, and chilling out or, or whatever you're doing. It, there's nothing inherently evil or bad about that. It's just another tool within that mechanism mm -hmm. to, to to jam stuff up, whether it's that whether it's police uh, doing searches or doing what they're doing. Uh, to sequester people in places and, and control them, they do it the same in, you know, in housing. Um, you know, it, it's just another one of those uh, those pressure points they can tap. Yeah, you know, this may have changed. I, I'm I'm referencing uh, some court uh, experiences I had quite a while ago in Massachusetts. It's legalized, and quite a number of my clients had their medical marijuana card. Um, now, whether in that context the bureaucracy are still able to use that as a an argument against providing benefits, I don't know. It may have changed in in the last uh, four or five years since it's become legal in Massachusetts. Yeah, and we have we only have in Delaware uh, medical only, and it's actually pretty narrow. Um, but uh, but but people do have their cards now. But what I don't know um, is whether because the restrictions on it are so uh, sort of arduous, whether, you know, people getting other assistance are even eligible. I, d I don't know. That's, uh, I, you know, in Massachusetts, everything's, uh, you know, it's it's recreationally legal now. And, and I think in many states. 
Yeah, uh, it, it's recreational legal, and I, I've I've never seen anybody apply for a card who didn't get it. Um, yeah, that's how it was in California before it was recreational legal. Now here in in Delaware, it's not only is it medical, it's it's actually um, it's more or less strict. Uh, like you know, it's 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 not as easy as it was say in California before, where you just went to the particular doctor and they were like, here, the, the, you're you have a prescription now. So it's 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 really weird. I I wonder where. This is one of the issues where I wonder where it's going to go across the country because the states are starting to be extremely disparate um, and it has an impact on people's employment. It'll have an impact on people's housing. It'll have an impact on, uh, you know, what the criminal justice system can do. So, yeah, it's something that we talk about fairly often because it, it, it intersects through a lot of the social issues that we talk about all the time. Oh, absolutely. And there are some people who are in... in housing complexes where they're they're on medical marijuana but not allowed to smoke so that creates some some level of tension i i haven't seen anybody really get in trouble for it so. i have a question um that you you sort of do touch on in the piece a little bit um the misconceptions about poverty um in august a group of uh, comrades and I started an online magazine of sorts, the Delaware Call, and uh, one of the things we published was an essay by Carl, super producer Carl here, uh, about um, the about suburban poverty. Um, people have perceptions when they think about poverty or people who are food insecure or homeless or whatever, um, and a lot of those are wrong. Um, you know the social despair and, and economic problems are growing in what we would consider the suburbs. They're, they're, some of, they're getting worse in some places. Um, can you discuss maybe some of those misconceptions and how they, how they work to sort of misframe the discourse? I know you, you touch on it a little bit uh, just about sort of uh, urban versus suburban racial stuff. And I wonder um, if you had any, uh, if you wanted to elaborate on that at all. Sure. Um, and, uh, the the area in Franklin County where I was working is is not I, I don't think you'd really call it suburban because it's not uh, um, joined in in any sense with any urban area. So it's these these are old mill towns, and uh, I, I think there's probably a a fascinating narrative around the evolution of the economies in these places. Uh, these, these were at one point uh, booming centers of uh, manufacturing all throughout Massachusetts. There, there's one old mill town after another. And the, the economy kind of left. I think they, that uh, corporations took a, a sort of multi-step evolutionary transition where they first went down south for cheaper labor and then uh, eventually wound up overseas and in Asia. Um, for example, the Massachusetts had a, a really huge shoe industry. I, I doubt that anybody's made a pair of shoes in Massachusetts for 60 years or so. Um, and the, the, the people who were kind of stranded in these towns, uh, They've, we're seeing, or what I was seeing is, is really multi-generational poverty. Um, poverty that had been 
sort of institutionalized when the manufacturing system pulled out and uh, left these uh, really rural places with no no economic uh, opportunities whatsoever. And you know there there are a, a few places to work in in Franklin County. Um, none of them are terribly attractive, but uh, the, this is a, a sort of uh, you know the the poverty that I was seeing you know has a long historical um, narrative that I'm I'm not really in a position to to cover with a, a great deal of detail, but it's it's part of a larger story, but. For sure, in these areas, there is a great deal of poverty. Places like Turner's Falls, Greenfield, these are very poor towns. Um, and, and there's very little there. And uh, you know, we, I, I talk about the, the projects and the subsidized housing and, and how uh, these places are sort of um, artificially isolated from the surrounding community. But I think in all fairness, even the surrounding community is pretty poor. There are sort of remnants of its past glory. There's a, a couple of streets in Greenfield that have uh, 19th century mansions that are, you know, kind of speak to a, a whole other epic in, in Greenfield's history, but, uh, now there's there's very little there, and and I I should also say that even though this is an area that's largely white, when when I'm looking in the in the projects in the subsidized housing areas, um, there's a, a a fair number of Black and Puerto Rican people um, who are disproportionately uh, represented as they always are, in in terms of uh, having to suffer the the worst lows of the economic failures of the system. Yeah, one of my um, big influences just sort of doing leftist organizing and the podcast and trying to dip our toe into sort of the media thing is uh, Michael Brooks. Um, he, he passed away earlier this year, unfortunately. But one of the things that was that he always talked about about his sort of political awakening or enlightening was he grew up um, in a, in a poor area in Western Massachusetts. And he told some of this history, as you're saying, sort of intergenerational sort of insecurity, whether it's housing, whether it's food. And he had the same sort of sort of sort of political enlightenment just from dealing personally with those kind of issues just in the community there. in One of the towns, um, I don't remember which uh, Pitts is there a Pittsville or something like something like um, that. Yes. Um, Pittsville. Pittsfield. It's it's on the the New York border, I think. Yeah, Pitts, Pittsfield is uh, kind of extreme Western Massachusetts. We're sort yeah. of uh, West Central. Uh, gotcha. So, so uh, Pittsfield's about I don't know maybe a forty minute drive from here. Right. So the the last big topic um, I I wanted to sort of discuss is to to bring this sort of to together to what's happening now. Um, I think mass evictions seem to be coming. Everybody's predicting. Um, everybody's predicting that um, the homeless pop population will probably grow, but there's an opportunity for mass movement organizing and activism. 
Um, you touch on it briefly at the end of your piece. Uh, here in northern Delaware, the county government has used uh, CARES funds to purchase a shuttered hotel as an emergency measure um, to address some of this. I had the county executive on a couple of weeks ago to discuss it. Um, it's a temporary measure, but it does indicate that the issue is getting some bureaucratic attention. Uh, and I do think it's a genuine attempt to develop some significant infrastructure, um, you know, not just temporary housing, but health services, um, uh, addiction treatment services, job training, and so on. Um, what type of organizing are, are you aware of? Um, and are there any specific uh, areas that um, that you think are, are ripe for um, that kind of organizing? Well, I, I would love to see um, more aggressive organizing in places like Greenfield and, and Turner's Falls. I think that there would be some resonance if, if things got off the ground. Um, I, I should say in, in, in defense of Greenfield and Turner's Falls and Franklin County that these are fairly liberal areas. These are the areas that uh, vote for Bernie Sanders in, in the Democratic primaries. Um, these, and, and also, uh, even though uh, quite a number of my clients were poor white people, there's, there's a, a gen, general... Um, sort of forward-looking kind of ethic there. I, I saw lots and lots of interracial couples, uh, tolerance, friendships. Uh, when I worked in California, I saw a lot more overt racism than I'm seeing in Western Massachusetts. So I, I think there's a, a climate that's uh, that, that's open for activism. At, at the same time, um, as I sort of had mentioned uh, briefly in my piece, uh, these are people who are really beaten down. Um, and uh, to, just as an example, almost none of my people were registered to vote. Um, and uh, if uh, anybody asked them about it, uh, they would say, well, what good is that going to do? And, uh, you know, you can certainly understand. And, and and I, I also, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I really highlighted it enough in, in my piece, but uh, as I said, this is multi-generational poverty. It's not really something you can just attribute to Donald Trump, as awful as he is. Um, that the, This is, is kind of a, a deeper indictment of, of the American system. Um, and that when Trump is, is out of office, the the plight of my former clients is probably not going to get any better. Um, it's going to take a, a lot more than that. Um, to, to say another thing about activism, too, where we're seeing two separate streams that are apt to be joining in some way. Um, I don't know if you saw the, there was a piece on, on the, the program, The Hill. I don't know if you watched that or aware of that with Crystal Ball and uh, Sagar, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name. Yeah, right. I'm familiar with it. I don't, I don't watch it on a regular basis, but I, I'm familiar with the show. Yeah. Well, they they had a a, a bit yesterday where they uh, talked about that there are are 12 million renters, 12 million renters. So each renter is representing a family. 12 million renters who by January are going to owe on average close to six thousand dollars in back rent 
Um, so that that's an astonishing figure when you think about it, because if you, if you look at every family uh, and say it's going to average into three or four people, you're talking about 36, 48 million people who are facing eviction. Um, and these are these are people that are I I am imagining are somewhat different than the the people that I work with, who really aren't facing a, a eviction. Most of them because they're they're already in dire situation, or they've obtained uh, um, social security disability and uh, housing subsidies where they're relatively secure. Um, but these these people who have had multi generational uh, struggles with poverty are now about to be joined by the most vulnerable uh, portion of our working class. So how that's going to play out is, is anybody's guess, but the, it would seem that there are going to be a lot of people struggling. And when you have those kinds of numbers, I, I can't imagine that uh, there isn't going to be some, some serious activism that's going to be spurred by that kind of desperation. Yeah, I, I hope so. One of the things uh, when we just had our electoral season here and and I went out one day, I had never canvassed before, and I went one day out into the city and, and, and canvassed for a candidate and talked to people. And that was, you know, when you get that reaction, like, yeah, well, I'm not registered. I don't see any, I don't see the political... The, the the idea that the political process is going to pr produce anything productive in your life and your material conditions is nil. Um, as I said earlier, just this week, um, you know, president-elect, not not this president, but thank God the other, you know, no, you know, everybody voted no. Uh, but he said people don't want a handout. People want to, you know, this idea that somehow you know, there's honor in work. But what does that say? These people that, that people don't, you know, are lazy. Like are, they're, they're, there's there's systemic things going on um, that we just talked about for almost an hour. But there, that that discussion is not as of yet being reflected in our political discourse. You know, I, I can say something about, uh, you know, I, I think one of the most reprehensible uh, um, political themes is, uh, you know, the the Republican and to some degree, some Democrats as well, uh, idea that that uh, people who aren't working are lazy. Um, but uh, th there's a, a pretty uh, vibrant underground economy that occurs uh, among the, as I called it, the, the bottom strata of the, the social of the social economic system, um, people who are who are on um, social security disability are are often working pretty hard. You see people working under the table in restaurants where they're underpaid. The minimum wage in Massachusetts, I believe, is about eleven dollars an hour, but you, you'd see restaurants hiring people on disability and paying them five dollars an hour. So, yeah, we we have a similar thing here, training wage, tipped wage, where our our minimum wage is, is abysmal as it is and, and it's the same thing. There are there are carve outs and, 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 and little things you can do to even drag that back. 
Yeah, I, I have a had a, a guy, a client of mine, who uh, had a, a long prison history and, and had a, a great deal of difficulty finding work. Um, but he was very skilled at uh, customizing cars, uh, all, all sorts of uh, elaborate uh, painting sorts of things. And he would install stereo systems in cars too. And uh, he was doing pretty well sort of under under the radar. Uh, and in fact, I, I don't believe he was even on any sort of disability. He was just kind of kind of winging it with his skills. Um, but uh, I, I saw a lot of people who have a lot of talents that they uh, apply to the best of their ability. So it, it's not true that people are just sitting around doing nothing and collecting. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are, have very severe disabilities and, and maybe aren't able to do much. And I think it's incredibly cruel to call into question the benefits that these people are getting um, and, and, and being very judgmental and condemning of, of uh, people who have traumatic brain injuries and are, aren't able to work. Yeah. And it's, and it's people, as I said, I go to the, the technological advances, you know, all these technocratic solutions, all that is, is putting an app in your hand, you know, and driving four hours or six hours for Lyft and making, you know, $27 uh, or doing DoorDash or some gig economy thing where you can scrape together, you know, enough money to survive. Um, but that's and people you know, doing that too. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I that's. I mean, I know that's increased over the last several years. Um, I know that, you know, they're trying to codify this kind of exploitation. They just codified this kind of exploitation in a law in California just this month ago. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's a scary thing because we we talk about these issues and we talk about them as, as structural significant structural problems. Uh, but really, uh, what the capitalists see and the technocrats see is an opportunity to exploit it further, um, and that's that's actually going to make matters um, significantly worse. On top of the COVID situation, which, as you said, um, I think by any even moderate estimation, the evictions are going to be um, are going to be devastating in a lot of areas. Yeah, it's a, this is going to be a really interesting year. Just one uh, one. The last anecdote uh, is that um, th there are many people on disability who do try to work, but the, the system takes all their, their earnings away from them if they're already, uh, or, or they only allow them to keep a tiny little percentage of what they they make. So so there are people who try to, to, to work and keep it secret. And if, the, if their earnings get, uh, get reported to social security there's a huge penalty and you, you can see a lot of people who have tried to better their situation by working uh, you know really low paying jobs um, you know, I had one person who was working um, with, with some some organization that uh, uh, packed and sold uh, snacks, and uh, she was working like the night shift, working all night long and making just a, a few extra dollars, but she didn't report all of it, and and wound up losing her social security for that, and uh, 
and then losing the job and then having no income whatsoever. So that it's not an easy road to, if you, if you are ambitious and want to work and want to see if you can get off of the uh, of social security, because it really doesn't pay very much. It's, a, it's such a uh, pathetic amount of money that, that uh, people would rather work if they had a choice. Um, but there, there's no encouragement within the system to get people to go from social security to working. There, there are all sorts of uh, bureaucratic roadblocks that discourage people from making that step. Well, the essay is titled Couchsurfing the Waves of American Poverty. It's in the, it'll be in the recent print edition of Current Affairs. It's on the website uh, for Current Affairs. Uh, Phil Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about this. Oh, much. Uh, it was it was our pleasure, really. Thanks. Yeah.